in the program, the comfortability program, we talk with parents about what's your first intuition and then how can we rethink that, right? Like in the context of what we know about the neurobiology of pain, could we sort of consider another approach? And so we'll talk about things like this idea that my kids should feel better before they're expected to go back to school, let's Mm -hmm. say. Well, getting kids back to school is often an early goal in pain management because we want kids back to their routines and we want them to sort of be connected to their friends. And the more time they spend away from school, the more stress kids have about trying to catch up and they fall off track. So, you know, we rethink this and we say like, of course, this is your first intuition. And then also here's another approach that probably will get you down that recovery path faster. You're listening to Pedia Pain Focus, episode number 49. Today, we're going to talk about how healthcare professionals can disseminate the knowledge and skills which empower not just their patients and families, but also the healthcare professionals themselves. So, stay tuned. Pedia Pain Focus. You're listening to Pedia Pain Focus, brought to you by Proactive Pain Solutions. Pedia Pain Focus highlights pediatric pain information and provides tools and resources for all healthcare professionals taking care of children dealing with pain. Here's your host, Dr. Anjana Kundu. Hey there, this is your host, Dr. Anjana Kundu, bringing you another episode of Pedia Pain Focus. Thank you so much for joining me again, and today's episode is a special treat because this is a program that gets talked about all the time during a lot of my other episodes, and if you have been listening, you will know that we talk about the Comfortability Program. A lot of my guests mention it. I recommend this. This is a great resource for patients and families dealing with chronic pain. So I decided to sit down and chat with the founder and creator of the program, Comfortability, and it's Dr. Rachel Coakley. Now, in case you're thinking, well, I really don't need to listen to something that is all about patients and families, my friend, this is the most powerful tool that you can have in your toolkit if you're a healthcare professional. Doesn't matter what the area of your practice, but knowing these resources, about these resources, how to access them, how to engage your patients and families will empower you, first of all, even before you do anything for your patients and families. We as healthcare professionals deal with pain issues all the time, in every setting, all across the hospital and healthcare spectrum. So why would we not want something that would make our jobs easier, that would help our patients and us both lead a more fruitful, more satisfactory, and more meaningful existence? Pain is one of the most disempowering conditions any of your patients can have. But honestly, this is also very disempowering for healthcare professionals because we ourselves don't always get enough training and tools and resources to manage the pain in our patients, especially when it comes to pediatric patients. So hang in here with me. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this because there is so much amazing information that is coming from Dr. Coakley that I just want to jump into it 
as quickly as possible. However, I want to give you a little more information about Dr. Coakley because she is too modest to actually disclose all of that herself during the interview. So here it goes. Dr. Rachel Coakley is a pediatric pain psychologist in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. She is the Associate Director of Psychological Services there and the Director of Clinical Innovations and Outreach. She's an Assistant Professor of Psychology at the Harvard Medical School and holds national and international leadership positions as well. As I said earlier, she is the founder and director of the ComfortAbility Program, which is an internationally disseminated program that teaches evidence-based pain management skills to adolescents with chronic pain and to their parents. Dr. Coakley is also an author and published her book titled When Your Child Hurts, Effective Strategies to Increase Comfort, Reduce Stress, and Break the Cycle of Chronic Pain. In addition to her book, she also writes for the Washington Post in their ongoing Psychology Today column. Dr. Coakley's career focuses on translational research of evidence-based psychological interventions for pediatric pain management. And she has been honored with the 2016 David Weiner Award for Leadership and Innovation in Child Health with the American Psychological Association, and also the Carolyn Schrader Award for Outstanding Clinical Practice in 2020. So without further ado, here is Dr. Rachel Coakley. Dr. Coakley, it's such a pleasure to have you on Pedia Pain Focused. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with you telling the audience a little bit about yourself. I've been a great follower of your work and you, and of course, we share our pedigree from Boston Children's, but I'd love for the audience to hear from you. Well, I'm a pediatric pain psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital. I work in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine, Mm -hmm. and I serve as the Director of Clinical Innovation and Outreach in Pain Medicine. The focus of my work is basically around creating interventions that are based in psychology for the treatment of chronic pain. So center of innovation, what does that involve? So the innovation part of my job is really sort of where my passion lies, which is to say that there's this massive gap between what we know in the research about how psychology can be really helpful for the treatment of pain and what's really available to patients for accessible practice. And so what I'm very interested in is how do we create new resources, education, intervention that really helps to close that gap? Right. So why do you think there is this gap, Dr. Coakley? I think there are many reasons, I guess I would say. One is historically, as far as psychology is concerned anyway, there's a real stigma still around the integration of psychology into routine medical care. So part of it really stems from that. People think about chronic pain, they think it's a physical medical problem, and they don't understand that the treatment from that comes from psychology is an integral piece 
of the management of pain. You know, I, I often use metaphors and analogies in my work. And one way that I like to explain it to patients is to say that a child with chronic pain is like a tricycle with three flat tires. Mm-hmm. And we have to fill all of those tires to get going again. And one might be filled with medications and one is usually filled with structured physical activity. And the third tire is filled with these skills and tools and strategies that come from psychology. And once we get all of those tires filled, we get kids going again in the right direction. And where I think people really get tripped up, and when I say people, I I mean patients, but also often providers, is this idea that if psychology is part of the treatment, then the implication is that this is a psychological problem. Right. That's just not true. And our research bears that out. And so even though we've got 20 plus years of research now to show that things like cognitive behavioral therapy and relaxation-based strategies and mindfulness and acceptance and commitment therapy, all of these are really helpful for getting kids functioning again and treating the whole sort of person in the recovery from pain. We still are not doing an awesome job about integrating this into care early and making it really accessible for families. Mm-hmm. Do you have suggestions for how, especially the healthcare professionals, which are predominantly the audience of this podcast, what can they do to change how they approach this idea? And how can they incorporate this in their work and propagate what the reality is, which is that, you know, all these pieces are integral to better pain care? It's tricky to destigmatize this because I think historically there was such a dichotomy between the mind and the body, and we still have relics of that key concept here that you know mind and body are connected, that we are a whole person seems to make intuitive sense. Still, this is a real hurdle in healthcare right now. I think providers do justice to their patients when they can convey the message that pain is real. We we know that pain is real. We know a lot about how to treat it. We know that pain is the protective function of your nervous system. And that chronic pain can often be sort of a glitch in that protective nervous system function. We are hopeful that this gets better. And mm-hmm. psychology is an important part of how we treat this. That's the message we want all providers to be sending. What sometimes gets conveyed, and I've heard it myself and Sometimes patients hear it wrong. I would say sometimes providers say, I really think psychology could be a very useful part of your care. And they feel like they've been dismissed. They feel like the implication is that somehow their doctor doesn't believe them or thinks it's a, a psychology you know, root to the problem only. And for those providers, I often try to teach them metaphors or ways of talking about the psychology piece of things early in the treatment to give them the language to sort of soften that a little bit and to help bring families along in that journey so that the families feel validated and understood. But there are other providers still who convey the message, you know, who might say, we've tried everything in our medical bag of tricks. On imaging, it looks fine. You've tried the medications, they didn't help. You tried this, this, and this. We don't have anything else to offer. You should go see psychology. And that's, I think, an unfortunate message to be sending to patients. So I guess I would say, to my providers in this field, just be really mindful of the language that you're using to talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. using a metaphor or an analogy like a tricycle or 
one of my colleagues, Dr. Schechter, who's the head of our chronic pain clinic, often uses the analogy or metaphor that, you know, there's a, your nervous system is like a the computer, like a computer hardware. And essentially, you're, the computer is not working at this point. But if you cracked it open, you looked at the motherboard, the actual hardware itself would look fine. There's no problem there. It's the software that's broken. You need sort of this reboot to your system. And we reboot the system with this multidisciplinary kind of approach that includes psychology. So um, those are, I think, that's a great way of explaining as well. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. Metaphors are so important and, and people relate so well to them. Of course. So I always encourage our listeners to use those because one of the things, as you know, Dr. Coakley, sometimes people will get into this mind frame of, I don't have time to teach them about areas that are not my area of expertise. But what I'm hearing you say is all it takes is making sure the language that you use to convey the message and how you balance the various contributors to the pain experience mm -hmm. and how you convey that message to the patient is where the major work needs to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that's just it because people know that they want to have that conversation with their patient, mm -hmm. but they're not sure how to sort of open that door or how to start having those kinds of discussions. Just like you said, they're worried it's going to take too much time or there will be resistance to it and it feels too hard. So breaking that down a little bit can be really constructive. Perfect. How did you become interested in pediatric pain yourself? Well, my graduate work was really focused on understanding resilience and chronic illness for kids. And I became really interested in thinking about how do kids bounce? Because we know that the severity of a, an illness or a pain problem doesn't necessarily predict who does well and who doesn't do well. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much variability there. There's like that black box, right? Kids shoot off on different trajectories. And so I became very interested in thinking about, you know, okay, we know that there are medical vulnerabilities and neurobiologic risk and psychosocial vulnerabilities. We know what these risk factors are, but I wanted to get smarter about how we created intervention. So that was the backdrop. On my internship, which is like the psychology version of residency, I became involved with the oncology team there. And I'll just, I'll just tell you a quick story, just a personal story yeah. about what happened there. Their psychology team didn't have any psychologists that were actively, you know, routinely providing care. So they tapped us, their fellows to, or their art interns at the time to help provide that support. On this rotation, I met a girl, her name was Katie. She was 16 at the time. And she was admitted for an osteosarcoma recurrence. And she was kind of, she was really depressed and she was refusing treatment. The biggest deterrent for her in re-engaging in care was that she'd had horrible mucositis the first time and the medications even didn't treat it. She spent months with these, you know, really horrible mouth sores and she didn't think she could tolerate it again. Ultimately, she agreed to work with me and I taught her all sorts of mind-body skills, deep breathing and mindfulness and guided imagery pre-treatment. Mm -hmm. So she had that sort of bag of tricks now. So fast forward to when her treatment is really started. And I went to see her on the floor and it was, again, she had this terrible mucositis 
And she was just completely distraught. You know, I asked if I could sit down and, and do some of this mind body work with her, but it was one of those times in my training. And I think everyone's had experiences like this where on the outside, you try to present as being really confident, like, of course, this will help. But on the inside, you're like, I really don't think this is going to work. You know, like this is, this is going to exceed the capacity of what, of how these skills can work, you know, given mm-hmm. what I'm looking at. But we did it. And at the end, she was so grateful. And she said it made such a difference. And she said she felt much better and was really positive. And her dad was completely amazed. He was in the room. So I decided to teach him the strategy so he could lead her through them and they could do them jointly. And they just could not, they they told everyone on their floor, they told all of their physicians and they were furious. They said, you know, why didn't we learn these sooner in our care? This was so helpful. Like just knowing there was something she could do, like feeling that self-efficacy was so empowering for her. So it it was such a lesson for me about the impact that you can have with these skills and strategies from a pain management perspective. Mm -hmm. And I I just really held that with me. And when I went to Boston Children's to do my fellowship, I was in general medical coping and I did a lot of work on the CL service, which included a lot of pre-procedural or post-procedural pain management. You know, every time I saw a kid that was in distress was like, I know what we can do. Let's let's dive in. Let's start working. Here's why this is going to be helpful. Here's how we're going to do it. And my confidence translated to their confidence. And it was, you know, really empowering. So when this position to open up in the pain service, I was like, let's go. You know, like this is this is where we can really make a big impact in children's wellness. So that was sort of a long story around, but I think it was the education that primed me and then really some formative experiences in my training where you could just see this impact. Um, And it was like, how could you not want to continue doing that? Absolutely. No, that is very true. And it is these transformative experiences that just completely change or shape the trajectory of our lives and our Mm -hmm. work. I'm so glad that that you had that experience so early because now look at all the incredible work you've been able to do. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. That spoke to me so much when you just said, like, you know, when you feel like you you know the skills, but you're not necessarily so confident. You don't have the entire trust that this is going to, you're not, you don't have the conviction. Make it till you make it. Right, right, exactly. You don't know if this is ready for prime time, but you got to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously we all have those experiences. And one of my earliest ones, right after I'd finished my fellowship from Boston Children's and during the fellowship year, I'd done the, the acupuncture course there as well. And I was the very first person to bring in acupuncture service. I started the uh, integrative medicine program at Seattle Children's Hospital then. One day I'm doing these, like these quick procedures for the oncology kids where we do their lumbar puncture and bone marrow aspirates and things like that. And then one of the nurses there says, she's like, oh my God, this kid is so cute. And I'm like, oh my God, how adorable this one is, blah, blah, blah. She's like, yeah, wait till you see them when they wake up. Like, it's like they've been possessed by a devil. And I'm like, really? I mean, they're so adorable. I was like, okay. And and she says, well, can't you do something with your acupuncture thing? Because they had just heard about this new thing that Dr. Kundu has been able to bring over, right? So I, I'm like, well, I mean, first of all, I'm relatively new to the whole acupuncture thing, but I definitely hadn't heard of 
acupuncture being used for this emergence agitation, emergence delirium process that, which as an anesthesiologist, I know is a real phenomenon in that age group. So I'm like, "Um, I don't know. Like, I'm like, I mean, I could try. I have no idea. I've not heard of this being used in that way. I know how to do acupuncture and it does modulate the sympathetic. So those are some of the things I knew. And so I just spoke with the parents and I said, hey, here's the thing. There's this thing called acupuncture where, you know, I'm trained in it and I don't know whether it's going to work, but I hear that your kid, I mean, this is really tough on everybody. They hurt themselves. Parents are distressed. Caregivers are distressed. Like this kid is just violent for about 15, 20 minutes after they wake up maybe hours. So I said, well, we could give it a try. And they said, oh, please, anything, right? So I do it. And this kid wakes up like the angel that they were before they're going to sleep. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Like it was literally even the whole procedure was like five minutes, just that much difference. And everybody's like, oh, my God, including me. I'm like, what just happened, right? I know, I know. It's incredible, right? So yeah, I think we're we're all still learning as we go. You know? Absolutely. And then, then, of course, the word got out and there was a whole cohort of patients that they just said, we just want to make sure that you're available and that's the day we're going to schedule these kids. Because, so then we ended up publishing our, our experience with that. I'm sure. I, I mean, what a difference that makes though. I mean, and again, like, you know, distressing for the kid, yes, but so distressing for the parent. Absolutely. So anything that you can do, you know, to help the kid feels better, helps the parent to feel better. And Absolutely. I, I really think too, like in the, in the parent piece of this program, you know, essentially what we're doing is teaching the parents how to respond to their child's pain, right? giving them some tools to help move them forward. You know, how do they strike that balance between when to push and when to back off with their, you know, treatment. That's like a tightrope act that the parents walk all the time when they're, you know, kids say, I, I can't do it because I hurt. So giving them those skills to be able to confidently support their child in moving forward is, you know, so important. Right. What drove, what, in, what inspired you to start the Comfortability Program? I definitely started this program because could see that there was this big gap in in care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I started at our pain treatment service, it's been 15 years now that I've been there. I came on board as a part-time psychologist there. I was working in our consultation liaison service as well. Mm-hmm. And there was just this massive wait list of kids waiting to be seen. I, I think it was about 70 kids on the wait list. And, you know, the, the cognitive behavioral part of it, the, the one-on-one intervention, which is the very traditional model, psychologists work with their patients. It's generally short-term, but when we say short-term, for kids with a complex problem like chronic pain, you know, it, it could be 14 to 20 sessions, let's say. So it takes some time mm-hmm. uh, to do this work. So, you know, it's it was just sort of this aha moment, like, or not maybe aha, but like, oh, shoot, kind of like, how are we going to get to all of these kids? They're going to be waiting here for years. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of made me think we need really a group based intervention. But the other thing that became really clear to me when I started to do this work clinically in my day to day is that the, the core approach from a cognitive behavioral therapy standpoint that we take applies widely to kids with various pain problems. 
In other words, everybody needs the pain neuroscience education and everybody needs the psychoeducation and everybody needs some of this basic hands-on skills training for some of the, the techniques and things that we use. And so it seemed that it would be very easy to start to take that information, really fine tune it, you know, figure out what's working best, what's not through the, the research and the experiential piece of it, and then put it together in a, in a program. Um, and then importantly, share it because this all takes so much work. We have to get better at sharing our resources so that not everybody is trying to recreate the same wheel. Right. So then who is this program for? And I think you started to delve into a little bit into what it is, but if you can describe the program a little bit and who is it exactly for? So the comfort ability program, sort of the the core mission of the program is to teach kids and teens and their parents or caregivers about how to manage chronic pain. And we're talking, I sort of use the term chronic pain. I'm talking about kids with headaches or abdominal pain, post-surgical pain, post-infectious pain, nerve pain, disease pain. We don't really care. From from the perspective of this program, if you have ongoing pain, Mm -hmm. this program is for you. And the ages are generally about ages 10 to 17 is sort of who we made the program for. Mm-hmm. It's primarily rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's sort of got four component parts to it. I would say it, it does include some really good pain education. Mm-hmm. It teaches the basic tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy, that is that thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are all connected. And when you have catastrophic thoughts like this pain will never end, it changes how you feel, which changes what you do and how you start to flip that around. And then hands-on skills training. So what I mean by that is we don't just tell them about what a guided imagery is. We teach kids how to do it. They practice it. We talk about how they feel afterwards. So they have this real experiential component to it. And then importantly, social support, because, you know, more and more we find that these kids are so alienated and every family that's struggling with this thinks they must be the only one, you know, that, that this can't be that common of a problem. When in fact, of course, we know that it's very common, one of the most common problems in pediatrics. So mm-hmm. we have workshops that we run throughout the country in the U.S., Canada, and then Australia right now. We have 21 partner sites that are running the program. And we also have a lot of free resources available to patients through online health chats that we do for teens and for parents, sort of this ask the expert feature where people can write in questions and get them answered by a physician or a physical therapist or a psychologist and loads of free downloadable resources and exercises to try and things like that. And our goal is really like overall to Make sure that we're giving people the introductory skill set that they need to start to really move forward in the recovery process, and then to make sure that they're connected with some really good science-backed resources. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And the workshops that you run, are they are they virtual or are they in person? Here I am. So, right. The funny thing is, um, we... So the workshops were designed as an in-person intervention, actually was designed as a comprehensive one-day workshop where we delivered 12 hours of intervention, six to the kids, six to the parents. So there's two arms to it. The kids and parents are in separate programs all day. Mm. And, you know, 
together in the course of, in the arc of a whole day, they got the full intervention. So that was how the program was designed. And the idea behind it, you know, it was very, very intentional how we set this up because it's sort of like, if you've got the willingness to try, you know, group therapies that take place over many sessions can be useful as well, because between each session, you can practice the skills. But also people can become frustrated. They might not get the whole treatment, you know, so we wanted to make sure they got the education and the skills training, the whole arc of the of the experience once they got their foot in their door. So we would know that they would get the full intervention. So that's how the program was designed. We were in the process actually of applying for a grant to do a virtual adaptation of the program when COVID hit. And we just, so so I share that because we had the roadmap in place, right? We knew how we wanted to do it. We had thought about what this might look like. Um, we thought about the technology aspect of it. So we had like, we were already out of the starting gates with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, when COVID hit, we sort of scrapped the grant because we didn't have the whole opportunity to apply and wait for funding. Right. And we just did it. And we piloted it a few times at Boston Children's, and now we're sharing it with our partner sites as well. So to date, we have six partner sites who have been trained around the virtual program as well, and others that will be on board soon. Lovely. This is a phenomenal program, and you have such a wide impact. And clearly, what a resource for patients and families both, but also for healthcare professionals that are caring for these children in pain. Because when these patients and families come informed and educated about some of these things, they are more willing and active partners in their care. Yes, that is and, a really key goal here. Absolutely. Right. Why, what, any other reasons you think that this is really important? Why everybody should, why should there not be everyone jumping on the ship with you? Well, I I think everyone should jump on the ship. (laughs) I think um, it's, you know, I'm just using, I think, I think they know what you're getting at. Um, Right. But I'll just, I'll say this, this is not the only way to roll out, you know, these particular resources and in creating this program, I didn't invent a new a new skill or a new intervention. What I've really worked to do is to fine-tune how we package this to make it transferable, to make it accessible, um, and a lot of resource into thinking about how do we deeply engage families so that they do feel empowered and validated and supported, and they walk away with hope and encouragement and really fundamentally understanding at least this psychology piece, if not the whole piece of how we rehabilitate, that it's much more like a rehabilitation kind of process or like, you know, we often talk about it being like an athlete recovering from an injury and getting back on track, right? So mm-hmm. so we want them to really be deeply engaged. So they understand that. And that's an art as it is, as much an art as it is a science. Absolutely. Um, you can tell somebody about a new skill. You can even show them how to do it. But there's there really is an art to getting them to feel like this could be an important aspect of their care. So that's what we've really worked. One of the things that I've also put a lot of energy into comes from the framework of what's called knowledge mobilization, which is really the practice closing that gap, like we were talking about, right? So it's the official sort of term for using research uh, and 
creating innovation and then getting that out, which I don't think we historically have been very good about this sort of idea that if you just build something, if you just innovate something and you put it out there for people that it will have uptake, we know it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a lot of work that I've focused on, which is in the transfer and training part of this. So how do we support institutions in adopting a new program such as this? How do we train new providers? And you know, how do we streamline that so there's an easy glide path so that when you think about how do you work a program like this into the care pathway, we've got an easy route to do that, or at least a, a, a clear vision of how of how that can unfold, and that makes that that reduces the burden on any individual healthcare provider to try to come up with how we start to implement something new. Because when we have a new partner site, we do a lot of handholding to walk them through the steps and make sure that they get trained and that they've got the resources and the institutional support and the funding all of that so that it becomes a much easier, it becomes an easier opportunity to start something new. Absolutely. And Dr. Coakley, as you say that this is obviously more of a knowledge mobilization strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And as you are very well aware, there's a huge initiative, especially in Canada, and Dr. Christine Chambers has done in her group and her partners, which I know Comfortability is also partnered with Skip and my company, as well as the Society for Pediatric Pain Medicine are all partnered with that because we think it's a worthy cause and really something that we all need to be doing. So how how do these align or are different from each other? The the work that Skip is doing and the work that you're doing, do you have a sense for how they may compare with each other? I think that they dovetail with one another is how I would describe it. So what Skip has done an incredible job of doing is making it a national priority to improve their pain management, right? And they have they have really elevated this, brought it into the public eye, brought it into the 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 you know the eye of sort of all of their provinces to focus on it collaboratively. I really wish that we could replicate something like that here in the US. Like I think that would be incredible. But they sort of created this framework, this infrastructure. And then just as you said, through all of these partners who have this sort of shared vision that We've got good stuff we want the patients to have access to. They're working behind the scenes, streamline or make those network connections. So, for example, as a, as a partner with Skip, they share information about the comfortability. And if a site has interest, they will, you know, try to make those connections so that I can talk with them and we can create or start to talk about potential partnerships and things like that. So I would say they are sort of the high level networking infrastructure that sends the very clear message, this is an important focus. And we are a one of many, I think we have hundreds of partners that is sort of for a site that, for example, feels like they don't have that psychology piece of the arm, you know, that psychology arm of chronic pain management, or they have it, but their their demand is exceeding their capacity, you know, a program like this can help to really provide additional care and support for the system there. Fantastic. 
What is your ideal goal for the Comfortability Program? Where would you like to see it go? We are growing so quickly. I mean, it's it's absolutely been just a phenomenal ride. And I've had such incredible support from colleagues that what started as something that was pretty small, like really a passion project for me has, you know, grown and grown. And I think that there are so many places that we could, you know, continue to expand my ultimate goal. So the program itself, you know, as I said, it sort of has these different component parts to it. My overall goal is to have increased accessibility. And I think it's also very important to do this from a health equity lens as well. And there's a a particular offshoot of the program that I've done just for sickle cell pain itself, Mm -hmm. which is its own module that really is just for kids who have sickle cell pain. Because I, I often think about the fact that in Boston Children's, our pediatric pain center, it's a very specialized treatment program, you know, or a subspecialty service mm-hmm. and get to us until they've already been through their pediatricians and usually through other specialty services, like maybe GI or rheumatology or neurology, you know, they've usually had so much testing. They've had so many evaluations and they've been stuck in this holding pattern. So often by the time they get to us, they're already quite disabled from their pain. It's been going on for months or years, you know, they've been stuck. So my oh, my dream really is that we could make this so mainstream and accessible to kids that pediatricians would just be referring their kids to something like this. I mean, we're talking about a short amount of intervention. So when kids develop persistent headache or persistent stomachache before it's become an entrenched problem, comorbidities and, you know, real disruption to a child's life, that they could gain access to these mind-body skills and this kind of approach that would shift that trajectory. Amazing. And earlier, I think in our discussion, you said, obviously, comfortability is broad enough, encompasses enough of the information and tools to be applicable pretty much in any pain, especially if it's you know persistent pain. And then, of course, you said you specifically designed a module for the sickle cell patients. A, what was so different about the sickle cell patients? Secondly, do you see other populations that are in similar boats and would need more specialized or adaptations of the comfortability program? Yes, absolutely. I think you know the research that we've done on the program from an outcomes perspective really shows that there's that that where you hurt so whether it's headache or abdominal or foot pain matters not in terms of the outcome so that's not predictive how long you've had pain that's a predictor of how well kids do you know in the long term but but generally speaking where they hurt isn't a differentiating factor but for our kids with sickle cell this was done in partnership with our hematology team because they were referring kids to the comfortability program, but they weren't coming as much as they would want them to. Mm. So we wanted to create a program that would be sort of even a more flexible administration platform and one that would talk a little bit about sickle cell health in addition to talking about the pain coping and their idea. So it's a much shorter intervention. It's only about two and a half hours long and similar to the comfortability. It's got a 
workbook and a, a treatment manual that goes along with it, but it can be done virtually. It can be done on the inpatient side if a child's admitted for a pain crisis. It could be done in conjunction with a routine outpatient visit, one-on-one, small group. So we have really sort of tried to make this administration platform so flexible that we could meet kids where they are. Felt like that was a really important piece of this because you know, I think the psychology piece of it, and we were talking before about the stigma, that's still a really big barrier, especially for our kids with sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. So wanting to sort of figure out how we, again, think about integrating this into the care pathway in a way that makes it routine, accessible, and sort of has the support of the full team. Mm-hmm. So that was why we're working with the Dana-Farber right now on an offshoot that will be specific for kids with cancer-related pain as well. Again, that's a very different, there are some very different kinds of things about management of cancer pain. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll include some information about procedural pain management and things like that as well. Um, and the parenting piece of that, you know, the, the comfortability, you know, part of the success, I think, comes from the fact that within the treatment of the child, we've really worked in a full parent training treatment as well, right? So like I said, Mm -hmm. six hours, kids training, six hours for the parents and parents need this desperately. And I really think it's the the synergy that we get from both the kids and the parents together um, that gives them a shared language to talk about their recovery. It gives them some shared skills, training and education. So there's there's that sort of, we're in this together kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And now we've got some tools as a family to move forward. And the same kind of approach is needed for cancer care. There's very little out there in terms of how we support parents in supporting their child's pain management. So we're excited to you know get working on that and get that out there too. That's amazing. So Dr. Coakley, as part of this comfortability program, I know you have a workbook for the parents and workbook for the teens, and you also have a comfortability kit. What, what do they include? What do they look like? The workbook for the kids group, it's about 65 pages, really beautiful graphics in it, and it's very fillable. So what happens is the way that we often teach the skills for kids, I'll give you an example. We read about the skills, we talk about the skills, and then we practice the skills. So with diaphragmatic breathing, the kids will see a picture of where your diaphragm is. They'll learn about why it's important to breathe into your diaphragm, how that helps your nervous system to calm down. Then they'll see one of the group leaders do the skill. They'll get it demonstrated for them. And then they practice it together. And then in the workbooks, they circle the words and rate how they feel after they do it. And then we talk about what did that do for you? Was it easy? Was it hard? When could you use this skill? How would you implement? And at the end of the program, the kids all put together what's called their comfortability plan. And this is really a time where they think about all of the skills and strategies they learned in the course of the program. And they put together, you know, what are, what are your top, what were your favorite relaxation strategies that you learned? When would you use these before bed, at school before a test, you know, to help you when you have a pain flare, you know, when would you sort of implement? And we talk about what are your top goals and what's the first next step you're going to take towards that goal and um, what makes you confident that you can reach your goals. So they, they pull everything together at the end. And so the teens workbooks are designed to really help them or guide them through the program. And then 
live as a document where they've rated their experiences and written down their thoughts and then pulled it all together for a plan. That's really helpful because one of the things is that we want kids after they do this program, let's say, to be able to go to a community provider, a social worker, or psychologist who might not be a pain expert, but with this workbook and with this child, they're going to see all the skills that they learned and how the kids did with them. So it can really be provides nice continuity of care. Another way that that helps is that we encourage parents to talk with their kids about what's in the workbook so that they can understand how their kids are thinking about this and the skills that they learned too. So that's the kids' workbook. The parents' workbook is pretty different. It's not as fillable. It's got a few exercises that the parents do, but it really serves as an education guide and a resource guide for them. So as we're talking about things like the neurobiology of pain, even though we try to present it in a really accessible kind of way, we want the parents to have this information written down. Or Mm -hmm. when we're talking about what's an appropriate school accommodation, we want the parents to have that in writing so they can always go back to it. They learn and they work on building return to function plans for their kids, lives in a little bag, and think about them as the tools that you would use to help with pain management. You know, we often talk in cognitive behavioral therapy about building a toolkit. And we really wanted kids to have uh, an actual kit, something that they could take, whether they toss it in their backpack for school or they keep it at bedside to remind them of how to use their skills. So things like um, an eye mask so that when they're doing their relaxation, they can be in a dark space kind of thing. We teach the kids about biofeedback so they get a biofeedback stress control card to use to monitor that. We talk with them about not using screens mm-hmm. for, um, at that time because um, the blue light from the screens keeps them up. And right. so, so we give them a little mini book light so that they can read a boring book or an old fashioned yes. magazine instead yes. of being on their phone. You know, So we're trying to sort of give them the tools. They have a hot cool pack. So if they can do something that feels good, if they want to put something on there. They get a little coloring book and some pencils. And we talk about mindful coloring and mindfulness as an opportunity to use a distraction skill. Mm -hmm. They have a stress ball, of course, you know, your classic brain because pain is in the brain Mm -hmm. stress ball. So they've got that that they can use as well. So it's really some of the tools so that when they go home, they've got these concrete reminders of the skills and how to implement. Those are amazing. And some of those I think are you know, you don't even have to be in pain to want to use all of those oh, resources. So we implement a lot of them are used you know, when we do our in-person workshops. We use a lot of these tools in the workshop so that they have practice and experience using them. And then they go home with them as well. And so that we hope that there's that carryover piece of it. I'd say then comfortability is basically your survival kit that you're giving them. Resilience kit is a better word even. So that's fantastic. You know, the language we use in the program throughout is about building comfort. We don't even talk about getting rid of pain because that's for some kids with disease-related pain, they may always have some pain in their life. But for a lot of kids, their pain gets better because we want the language to work for everyone. It's all about how do you build comfort? What's within your capacity? And what is the skill that you're going to use to boost your own comfort? How do you get closer to comfort? Um, And we really try to broaden the idea and the thinking around what it means to be comfortable and how sometimes you can create some comfort for yourself, even in the context of pain. That is beautiful. Love it. That's great. 
So how does one become a partner with you? If somebody else wanted to come on board, what do they need? Are there requirements that they have to meet? As well as what does it mean to the institution that's coming on as a partner? We welcome new partners. I would say just call me. Um, okay, I'm sure you'll post contact information. We have we have a, a website um, where you can see good information about the program and an email for the program as well. And what we what we start with is just a conversation about you know what does your clinic look like, or if you don't even have a pain clinic, you know some of our partner sites are children's hospitals that don't have a specialized pain clinic, but they've got kids, you know, a psychologist in their GI program or in their rheumatology program or neurology who's dealing with headache pain. And between those programs, they've really come together to sponsor the implementation of the comfortability program. The program itself is licensed through Boston Children's Hospital. The license really covers the the content, yes, but also the training and transfer of it. So we have a really straightforward training protocol where we work with sites to give them the information and the training that they need. And then we support them in their program launch. And if all goes well, then they're good to run it. If they hit snags and they need a little more support, we're there to provide that as well. But it's a very sort of individualized collaboration in that sometimes a site will approach us and say, we're interested to write a grant to support you know, the implementation and we'll help give them the resources, the materials, things that they might need to put a good grant application together. Sometimes they say, you know, our, our department is just going to fund it. We're ready to go. We've got all the psychologists, you know, we'll, we'll just sort of work with them to think about what is their readiness to adopt this particular intervention. And if it looks like they're good to go, we just help get them on their way. And if there are some holes, we try to partner with them to think about how they might prepare themselves to adopt something like this. Great. And what are the elements of the readiness that uh, an institution has to have? And also, of course, the costs of implementation of such a program. The readiness is just about, you know, who's going to be the site director? You know, are they able to sort of carve out a little bit of time for that person? Do they have some administrative support for it? Do they have enough people to be minimally, I would say you need a site director, a little bit of administrative time, and then probably two other people who are willing to be trained in the intervention itself. Most sites run the program about either once a month or once every other month. And so again, you know, in terms of the clinical load, it's the demand is not that great. The cost of the the license is tiered so that smaller institutions pay less than larger institutions so that we can really balance that a little bit, again, trying to increase accessibility. And that's another area where we really work hard. You know, our our main goal is to, to get this out to people. And so if there was an institution that financially was you know, struggling with it, we just try to have the conversations about how to you know, think about that implementation. From an institutional perspective, the, the cost of the program is not usually a barrier. I, I will say that in terms of the, the big picture for it. But I think it's just making sure that once you go through the training and, and an institution has invested in the program, that they've got the infrastructure for being successful in rolling this out. You know, do they have the flow of patients coming through? Do they um, know who's a good fit for the program? That kind of thing. Got it. The licensing, is that annual? Is that lifetime? How does that work? It's a three-year license agreement. And at the end of three years, there's another, so we do fidelity monitoring with the intervention. So, you know, when you launch, you have to pass a fidelity check so that we know that the content is being delivered appropriately. And then 
three years later, when the license comes due, there's another fidelity check at that time. So if you want to renew at that point, you go through, you know, but, but I would say, you know, one of the, one of the strengths of the program too, is that there's, you know, we really have a, a network. So we're actively engaging with our partners. We're actively rolling out new resources and updates and information all the time. So we stay very connected with our partner sites. And that also creates this really lovely opportunity to continue to exchange information. So the site says, we ran into the snag running the program. Anybody else, you know, running into that, we can quickly check with our other sites, find out if people have found workarounds, you know, support another site in doing it. So there's sort of active engagement. It's not like we launch and then you don't hear from us for three years. So we're a very engaged program network. Excellent. How does this relate to the workshops, that comfortability workshops that are being done? Is that part of this whole program or is that something additional or separate? So what the sites are doing are licensing to run the workshops. So the program is sort of the hub and there are these different component parts to it. But what they're doing is learning how to to actually host and run these particular workshops, which they can do virtually at their site or they can do in-person workshops post-pandemic. Awesome. I am amazed at the amount of work that you've you've done and the incredible resource that comfortability has created for everyone. And as we were talking about earlier, how like time is such a commodity for all of us, regardless of what we do, but especially in medicine. And having something like this not only empowers physicians, clinicians of all walks of pain medicine and, and otherwise, but the patients and families themselves. So thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. What advice would you have for healthcare professionals that are engaged in taking care of children with pain? I think that pain is such a complex phenomenon that it's really hard to just look at any particular body part. And so I think my main advice is to think about the child as a whole And please don't forget about the parents, because I think it really, I mean, as a parent myself, I can tell you, you know, anyone that's a parent, I guess I would say, has had the experience where they feel panicked about what's happening with their child. And these kids are in crisis when they've got persistent pain and the parents are in crisis and everyone in the family system is worried about what's happening. And it's easy to see how that could be so, right? It's easy to see that if your kid's hurting all the time, parents would be so worried about what was happening. And so I think if you can shift for just a minute and just put yourself in their shoes and sort of understand it really gives you, I think it humbles you in the experience of treating these families because this it's not an easy road and it's an exhausting process for kids and for parents and they're frustrated and they want answers and they want their kids to feel better. And I think we can validate that, we can understand that and also convey hope that this is really treatable, that most kids with these persistent pain problems do fare better. You know, we see it all the time. And so I think making sure that families feel that you're holding their hand and going to partner with them through that journey is really important. What other information do you think parents could benefit from that we should include in our visits that we have with parents? Like what kind of things can we teach them? 
to be able to do at home? That's a great question. I think one of the things that trips parents up is this idea between hurt and harm. You know, that their kids often say, I hurt, so I can't do something. And they think that rest is the right treatment for that because Mm -hmm. that's where all of our parenting comes from. It's sort of this idea, this management of a acute pain, like a short-term illness, like strep throat or sprained ankle, whatever that Mm -hmm. might be, where they think a little loving doting behavior is the appropriate response. And all that TLC goes a really long way towards helping kids feel better when it's a short-term problem. But when it becomes a long-term problem, all of that TLC, that doting behavior can inadvertently undermine a kid's recovery. In the program, the comfortability program, we talk with parents about what's your first intuition and then how can we rethink that, right? Like in the context of what we know about the neurobiology of pain, could we sort of consider another approach? And so we'll talk about things like this idea that my kids should feel better before they're expected to go back to school, let's Mm -hmm. say. And this idea that Well, getting kids back to school is often an early goal in pain management because we want kids back to their routines and we want them to sort of be connected to their friends. And the more time they spend away from school, the more stress kids have about trying to catch up and they fall off track. So, you know, we rethink this and we say like, of course, this is your first intuition. And then also here's another approach that probably will get you down that recovery path faster. So I guess I would say really helping parents understand or validating for them that everything that they've been doing has been in the best interest of their child and is, you know, coming from a place of good intent. And also there might be some opportunities for them to learn some skills or strategies or to rethink some of these approaches now that we know and really understand what this pain problem is all about. Well, thank you. Where can people find you, Dr. Kokui? You can find out a lot about my program on the website, which is just thecomfortability.com. You can email thecomfortability at childrens.harvard.edu, which is our program website. Probably the program email is the best way to reach me because my program manager will put through anybody. You can also find me on Twitter. My handle is at Coakley Rachel. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. And I foresee the future that I will be talking to you for hours and hours, I hope. (laughs) And I look forward to being able to collaborate with you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this incredible work. And even bigger thank you for sharing this with me, letting me into your world. Thank you. You are welcome. It's been really fun to talk with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Don't you love that feeling when you think that that presentation, that talk, whatever you were listening to or watching was worth every minute of your time? And when you can take the practical nuggets from that discussion and implement them right away that you know is going to make a difference in how you conduct your professional or your personal life from there on. That's how I felt about this conversation with Dr. Coakley. I'm not sure if you noticed, but I could go on and on talking to her for a very long time 
because she has all this wealth of knowledge and work that she has done that helps each one of us in everyday work that we do with our patients and families. The additional tools that I got for communication with my patients and families to explain the framework of their pain experience and or how to engage them in their treatment plans is just amazing. I would love to hear from you. What did you find practical and useful today? Which elements are you going to take from today's episode? And perhaps you can engage your own institution in accessing the comfortability program for your patients. Don't forget to check out the show notes. You'll have all the information there and much more. We will also have links to some of the other episodes that dovetail into the information that was discussed during today's episode. Now, if you found this useful, please make sure you share it with someone else that you know can use this information and would find it helpful for their patients and their own professional work. Also, please take a moment to review the podcast, today's episode, and or any other episodes that you may have been listening to. That helps us get this information in front of way more people who may be seeking this information, who may need it even more than you do. So thank you on their behalf and thank you from us here at Proactive Pain Solution. I will be back in one week's time with more amazing episodes. I have several fantastic guests that I've already interviewed, including Dr. Neil Schechter, who is Dr. Coakley's colleague and was mentioned during this episode. So make sure you check us out in a week. In the meantime, those of you in the Midwest or the East Coast, stay warm, stay safe in face of this nor'easter weather we're facing. But everybody, be safe, be proactive. Bye now. Pediatric Pain Focus is a presentation of Proactive Pain Solutions, a company committed to transforming pediatric pain care through improved access, quality, and expertise. Did you know that there are only four accredited pediatric pain medicine training programs in the U.S.? Meanwhile, there are 19 million children that suffer from chronic pain. This means the children's pain care is largely left in the hands of untrained healthcare professionals. This large gap in children's pain care leaves both the healthcare professionals as well as patients and families frustrated. Data clearly shows that untreated or poorly treated pain in children leads to a much higher incidence of refractory chronic pain that lasts into adulthood, much higher incidence of mental health diagnoses, and a massive societal burden. It also leads to poor job satisfaction and poor job security for healthcare professionals. Proactive Pain Solutions Physicians Academy is the answer to this major problem, eliminating that large gap through our comprehensive evidence-based virtual training program that's bolstered by live Q&A sessions, personalized mentorship, and leadership development. The limited time enrollment is now open and it offers a limited number of spots. So join our academy today and know what it's like to have the expertise at your fingertips while you enjoy the professional satisfaction and the job security that you deserve. Join us at www.proactivepainsolutions.com.